If you love the History Extra podcast and want to help us keep bringing you brilliant episodes, then please share it with a friend or a fellow history fan who you think might enjoy it. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hola. Hello. This call is being translated. Abuela, listen to what my phone can do. Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer. Wow. Ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva. Wow. Now tell me about this new girlfriend. Huh? Tú sabes lo que dije. You know what I said. Language is no longer a barrier. Thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at Samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer. With supply chains becoming more complex, you need to stay on top of the latest logistics developments. So if you work with logistics, you need the Beyond the Box podcast from Maersk. It's the easy way to keep up to date with everything from digital disruption and logistics to the need for supply chain resilience in today's market. Find out more and keep ahead of the game with the Beyond the Box podcast on logistics insights at maersk.com slash insights. Going for your first ever run around the park. Literally running errands all over town. Running for the finish line and your personal best. If you run, you're a runner. Find the shoes and clothes to run your way at newbalance.com slash running. New Balance. Run your way. And welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. It's hard to think of a musical instrument with more enduring popularity than the piano. For more than 300 years, pianists have captivated audiences while composers for piano have pushed the boundaries of music. In her new book, The Piano, A History in a Hundred Pieces, the author and pianist Susan Tomes tells this story by highlighting some of the most impressive pieces of piano music ever written and sharing the stories of the composers who penned them. Susan will be launching the book with a concert at Wigmore Hall this Friday, the 23rd of July, and I spoke to her to find out more. Your new book is A History of the Piano, but told through 100 pieces. So let's go back to the very start. Um, And if we'd gone back and witnessed one of the very earliest piano recitals, what kind of things would we have seen and heard? Well, first of all, I should say when we're talking about the earliest pianos, uh, the piano was a kind of an instrument that developed from the earlier harpsichord and clavichord, which uh, were but a little bit different in the way, the way that the, the string made a noise. Um, and in the harpsichord, the string is essentially plucked, 
by a little plectrum, which, uh, which uh, as the string moves past it, there comes a point where the plectrum plucks the string and a sharp, distinct noise is, is, is made. Now, um, when the piano was developed, there was a sort of different way of striking the string. So instead of using a plectrum, the, the string was hit from below with a little hammer covered in, well, first of all, leather. And and then later on felt, and you can imagine that you know, when when a string is struck with a with a soft hammer, it makes a different noise from when it's plucked. And uh, the the harpsichord was rather a quiet instrument, best suited to being listened to if you were able to sit close to it. And um, the the piano, as it developed, um, developed a larger range of tone a, a, a bigger you know a bigger volume and more nuances of tone so it as it developed it started to become more suitable for being played in larger rooms and being played in public concerts and so on you did start to get the first concerts where um, the piano was heard in public do you think that that's part of the piano's appeal because when i was thinking about this I think it's fair to argue that there's no instrument that's been as enduringly popular as the piano. Do you think that ability to to entertain large crowds is part of the reason behind that? Um, yes, it is an extraordinary thing, actually. The, the piano for, I mean, it's over 250 years now has been really, really popular. And uh, in fact, the heyday of the piano was probably the sort of the mid-late 19th century and into the 20th century, where so many people had pianos in their homes and wanted to have pianos in their homes and aspired to have pianos in their homes, even if they didn't play the piano. <laughs> it was just such a kind of a symbol of somehow being interested in culture, art and culture. And, and then I guess the piano has been very popular because because it's one of the the instruments that you can you can sort of lean forward and play a few notes and you will make a sound straight away. However, of course, there's a, a very big gulf between being able to do that and being able to play the, play the piano, you know, in such a way that other others would enjoy it. But I think the fact that um, the piano supports its own weight, gravity is is on its side, and and so that makes it possible to play with two hands uh, on the keyboard, playing different strands of music with each hand. So I think that's what makes it sort of uniquely uh, versatile and enjoyable for for the pianist because you don't need another player or other players to complete you know, uh, the, uh, a, piece, a piece of music. You can play a piece of music on your own and uh, I think that's that's what has made the piano, you know, so tremendously popular and and valuable over the years. What would you count as some of the milestone moments in the history of piano music? In a way, that goes along with the the composers themselves and the wonderful ideas they had for piano pieces, and then of course. In, in my book, I, I, I start more or less with J.S. Bach, Johann Sebastian Bach, who is kind of still at the top of many people's list of favourite composers, even 300 years later. And his music, which was really written for harpsichord, but then just during Bach's lifetime, the piano was being developed. And we know that in the, in the mid-18th century, Bach played the piano to Frederick the Great, 
And I think at that point, Bach had some criticisms of the sound of the piano. He wasn't satisfied uh, with it. Um, but the maker of the piano went away and thought about what had been said and, and introduced some improvements. And, and then gradually different piano makers can kind of came to the came to the fore and and started building instruments in different European countries and as they did so composers in those countries you know heard what was being developed for example um, when Josef Haydn went to London in the 1790s and he came from Vienna where the pianos sounded you know <laughs> the Viennese and then he came to London where John Broadwood was making a, a distinctively English piano, which was a bit uh, stronger in tone, more, more forceful than the Viennese pianos that Joseph Haydn was used to. And when he came to London and encountered these Broadwood pianos, he was very excited about it. And I think hearing these big English pianos gave him the idea that one could write in a bolder style with more contrasts of loud and soft and then Broadwood, who must have been some kind of marketing genius, John Broadwood himself had the idea of sending Beethoven a Broadwood piano as a gift um, and had a Broadwood piano actually taken to Vienna. Goodness knows how, how he managed that. And Beethoven was very enthusiastic about the Broadwood pianos. And so Beethoven at the time was sort of writing his great cycle of is it 32 sonatas for solo piano. And I think... Hearing a more powerful piano probably had an influence on the way that Beethoven wrote for piano. You, of course, are a player yourself and you speak in the book about um, the experience of playing on what are now antique pianos as a, as a contemporary player. What kind of insights does that give you about what it would have been like to hear these pianos played and what were some of the challenges of playing different styles, older styles of pianos? Well, it's partly when you realise how delicate these older pianos sounded, some, some of them then, and, and, and you realise that people sitting far away would not have been able to hear the, the kind of nuances of, of playing that, that, that sort of has, has an influence on you as a player. Um, but then it's a funny thing about historical instruments that one often gets the feeling that if these composers could have heard our modern pianos, they would have liked them, they would have liked to hear their music played on today's pianos because it's, it is sometimes seems as though, for example, um, with the music of Mozart or Schubert or, or Beethoven, it seems as though they envisaged a greater range of tone colours than was available to them, as though they were not exactly writing for the future, because I don't think that's quite the right way to look at it, but it's as though they, they somehow built into their musical conception the, the possibility that that um, there would be a greater range of tone colour and a range of volume available on the instruments of the future and that their music would adapt to that. Uh, so it, it is sort of mysterious, because I have tried, say with the music of Johann Sebastian Bach have tried playing it on on harpsichords and on on early pianos and on modern pianos, and I tend to feel that one can get the most out of it on the modern piano. Though I know I know that lots of people wouldn't agree. They would say it's essential to to hear the sounds that Bach would have heard, but that's actually not possible for us today because the sounds that that Bach would have heard 
are, are different in many different ways, not just the instrument, but the, the way the room was set up, how noisy the environment was, you know, what was going past in the street, the air and the climate and the way that sound moves in the air, you know, in that place at that time. It's all different. So I think for us today, it's not good enough to, just to get hold of a piano that we know was in Bach's house and play it and think that we're hearing the sound that Bach was hearing because so many of the parameters have, have changed. Who were some of the composers that that really ripped up the rule book, I guess, of what piano music meant at the time that they were writing? Well, I think if we if we're moving on from Bach, Mozart, and so on into into the Romantic era, I think that's really where composers maybe used started using the piano to its fullest capability and the particularly Frederick Chopin in the 19th century and Franz Liszt, those two, both of whom were wonderful performers themselves, so wonderful pianists. And the music they wrote for the piano, which was partly designed as a vehicle for themselves to to impress their audience with their with their own virtuosity. And they really seemed to uh, use the piano from the top to the bottom, you know, so that they are, are, are really kind of um, rippling across the spectrum, you know, with the most incredible virtuosic effects, but also the most spine tingling, you know, haunting, delicate kind of spiritual sounding effects and all, all that, which which was very much part of the romantic concept the time in, in in not just in music but in art and poetry as well where they they they're very much seeking the individual voice and the individual soul and how it could be expressed and Chopin and Liszt I think they they were they were both so good at making the piano do everything from whisper to thunder and roar you know and uh, and they yes i i think that makes their music just incredibly satisfying to play well uh, i wanted to ask you about players as well as composers who were some of the most impressive virtuosos from history and how do you think that they would stand up to today's best players i mean that's so interesting isn't it because um we can only guess at what some of the, the celebrated players of, of the past sounded like because we've only had recording for just over 100 years. And already I think it has become clear that when you listen to people who recorded in the very first years of recording, they you get surprises when you hear um, you know, early recordings because, for example, when I first started listening to historical recordings, and when I say historical, I mean around about 1900, um, that I had assumed that people then might play in a more, let's say, in a, in a slower, more tentative style, perhaps less confident than today, but actually not a bit of it. Um, sometimes in the very earliest days of recording, you find that people are playing with tremendous dash and sweep and, and, and elan and often at faster tempos than, than I was expecting. And I realised that you cannot make assumptions about how people played in the old days. And then when you realise that a hundred years ago, people were sort of dashing things off with, you know, with great, great momentum and confidence. It makes you realise that you you can't make assumptions about how people played two hundred years ago or three three hundred years ago. You know, and I think we would probably be quite 
surprised if we could go back and, you know, if it was possible to have a recording of Mozart playing, we might all be very surprised. Not just by the, the the technical way he played the piano or the sound sound he made, but also the sort of timing. Talking about who would have made a great impression as a player one or two or three hundred years ago, I think that's actually very hard to guess because I suspect that if I heard some of the people that they thought were terrific in the 18th century, you know, I might I might be rather shocked. <laughs> <laughs> so fa- fashions come and go in you know in 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 sound and timing and, and of course, presentation on the platform. Um, for example, Franz Liszt, the great Hungarian um, pianist and composer, when he played, he did. He had all sorts of platform gimmicks to make the audience love him more, such as coming on with a with a beautiful pair of gloves on his hands and then taking them off and tossing them into the audience for people to catch. <laughs> you know, like I just like I saw Novak Djokovic toss his trainers into the crowd at the end of his Wimbledon final the other day. Liz used to do things like that, and he used to um, smoke cigars on the platform and 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 likewise uh, throw the cigar butts into the audience and apparently ladies in the audience used to collect the cigar butts and 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 put them in their cleavages <laughs> like an ornament which i mean today sounds absolutely bizarre he was a great showman then yeah a tremendous showman whereas chopin who was his contemporary was not at all a show off in that way and actually found found um public performance quite stressful and as time went on, he, he reduced and reduced the number of concerts that he played. And I think when um, when people have tried to count up how many concerts Chopin actually played for a public audience as opposed to playing in somebody's drawing room for a circle of connoisseurs, if you count up his actual public concerts for which people bought tickets and came along, something like 34 concerts in his in his career, which is you know, incredible to a concert pianist of today where they might be expecting to play a hundred concerts a year. I think it just makes it really hard to to say, you know, who were the most impressive performers of history. But before the age of recording, we're really relying on the impressions of people who were in the audience or people who knew them and, and heard them and, and recorded what, what they thought. And sometimes you read these things thinking... You know, I wish I'd heard that. I'm sure I would have thought the same. And sometimes you read it thinking, I bet I wouldn't have liked that. You know, so it's 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 quite it's all quite fascinating, the history of performance and and the reception of of performance. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. Uh, for a lot of piano music, particularly of the Romantic era, where they're using wider intervals and they require greater stretches between individual fingers to get your hands on big chords, um, that is easier for men. It just it just is. Time flies. We blinked and 2024 is halfway over. What's something you've accomplished this year that you're proud of? Maybe you made it out of bed and to work every day. Or maybe you started shedding some old habits that were weighing you down. But even when you're making progress, life can feel like it's moving too fast. We can't slow time down, but we can give you a moment every week to hit pause, set intentions and reset. Therapy is a guaranteed time to check in on how you're feeling, what you want to do more of and what you want to change. Otherwise, it's easy to keep going through the motions without getting what you want out of life. 
BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. You can start the sign-up process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Take a moment with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hola. Hello. This call is being translated. Abuela, listen to what my phone can do. Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer. Wow. Ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva. Wow. Now tell me about this new girlfriend. Huh? Tú sabes lo que dije. You know what I said. Language is no longer a barrier. Thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at Samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer. A lot of the pieces that you, you look at in the book are, you know, they're deeply embedded in historical context. So I'm thinking you've got a piano trio um, from Shostakovich, which was written during the Second World War. And you argue that we, you need to understand that context in order to understand the piece. Can you speak a little bit more about that and perhaps some other pieces that were really influenced by the time that they were written in? Right. So you, you were mentioning Shostakovich's um, second piano trio, which was written, I think, during the Siege of Leningrad. Um a very harrowing piece in which he tries to depict a feeling of um, a feeling of being under pressure, a feeling of suffering, a feeling of sparseness and 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 uh, and and weariness and and anguish about the future and and sorrow about what was happening to Jewish people at the time and, and generally the, the sort of a very bleak and, and wintry picture and. I have sometimes wondered why did he choose only three people to present such a picture in music? And I think it's actually something to do with the fact that just a small group of people with just one on each instrument, one pianist, one violinist and one on the cello. And the three of them are trying to present this enormous canvas, this enormous portrait of Russia at a time of great suffering um, that makes it very touching if it's if it's well if it's well done but Shostakovich is an interesting example because a, a lot of his music is concerned with that period of Russian history Soviet history and I once heard a young string quartet playing a string quartet by Shostakovich which depicts the same period of Russian history they obviously didn't know a thing about it they had just learned the music from the notes and they just played what they saw in front of them on the page and I was rather taken aback by by the fact that the musical message did not seem to come across. And this was this was at a masterclass. I, I and the the person who was giving the masterclass, who was himself Russian, said to them that they had to understand what the music was trying to 
portray and that when there was very little going on, it didn't mean that it was empty. It didn't mean that it was quiet. It might mean that it was bleak. It might mean that they were, you know, there were no words for what they were experiencing. And of course, once they started to understand a bit of the background, it affected the way that they played. It affected the way that they looked. You could see that they were trying to feel in themselves, you know, what what might be behind the notes on the page. And the whole thing suddenly started to acquire a different dimension. And that that was very interesting to observe because I think there is some music that um, is not is not associated with historical events. It's it's just it's abstract. It's abstract music, and you don't really need to know what was going on in Schubert's life to understand the poetry and artistry of of his piano music. But there is some music which is more, say, specifically attached to a historical event or or era where. It does help. It's in fact, it's essential to understand, you know, what, what motivated the composer to write that. What was he trying to convey? He was trying to give us a sense in music of what it was like to be there, and and that's where, you know, obviously, <laughs> music education is so is so important. You have a whole section on jazz, um, and I wanted to ask about how that shook up attitudes to not only how the piano should be played, but also how piano music should be written and interpreted as well. Yes, that's very interesting because, of course, the whole history of jazz, or let's say we'll just start with ragtime, which was just slightly preceding jazz as, as, as we know it. Uh, ragtime and piano, what they called piano novelty music, say in the 1920s and then on, on with jazz, a lot of it was improvised rather than written down. And so um, that that developed a different, a different sort of playing um, and a lot of very, very talented pianists who learned by ear, played by listening to other people and memorizing what they what they had heard. A lot of them, especially the um, African-American pianists who specialized in jazz, they were extremely good um, players and very, very quick musically and could you know do so much just by listening and um, listening, remembering, improvising on what they'd heard, elaborating on what they'd heard, uh, that they developed really a whole you know, a whole style of of their own, often playing on pianos which were not of the greatest quality. You know, pianos that might might be found in bars, cafes, and clubs, and 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 yet they they managed to extract you know such a lot from from the the pianos of of their day, and they even managed to use the let's say the honky tonk sound of some of those pianos um, to their own advantage, you know, in music, which is rhythmically and, uh, and percussive, percussive and, and sparkling and, uh, and, and rhythmically exciting. They, they sort of managed to get the best out of those, those old pianos. In the introduction to the book, you acknowledge that feeling, um, you say, frustrated at the relatively small amount of women that you can feature in this list. Um, but who are some of those important women in the history of the piano? And what were some of the challenges um, to them playing as well? Yeah, it's true. It's actually one of the, it's a very sad thing, actually, when you come to study the history of, of well, any any kind of uh, music, actually. But the whole of classical music, any any book, any list of composers is largely composed of men. That was because of society's attitudes towards women and what they should be doing with their time, you know, what they were allowed to do. It was not seemly for them to perform in public. 
And there were throughout history, there have been many women who were very good pianists, um, but were not encouraged or allowed to play outside the home. And the same with composers. There have been women who managed to teach themselves or be taught how to compose, but they were not supposed to publish their music. They were not supposed to have their music performed. And for example, uh, the 19th century composer Felix Mendelssohn had a sister, Fanny Mendelssohn, who was probably as talented as him, both as a pianist and as a composer. But her whole family, her father, her brother, um, they they all thought that it was not permissible for her to publish her music. And indeed, when um, uh, uh, Felix Mendelssohn agreed that some of his sister's music could be published under his name, so it went out as being by Felix Mendelssohn, although it was in fact by Fanny. And there was a rather delightful incident where Mendelssohn came to London and met Queen Victoria. Queen Victoria was fond of singing and asked if Mendelssohn would play the piano for her when she sang a song. And then she said, I'm going to sing one of my favourite songs of yours, she said, and then she said which song it was uh, and began to sing it. And Felix Mendelssohn had to realise that it was actually a song by his sister. He nobly decided to admit to the Queen that it was actually not by him, but by his sister. And so she got she she got an unexpected bit of advertising in 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 the drawing room of Queen Victoria, but actually she had to take a backseat completely with her with her compositions, which you know, and many of which are probably lost to us, and, but some of them are, are 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 known today and are being played today. And she's you know she has so much to say, but she was not allowed to say it at the time. And the same went for many, many other women who tried to compose. And something that I I had never even really realised, of course it's so obvious until I read the book, is that the piano as an instrument is designed for male hands. Yes, I'm, I'm, glad, you, I'm glad you picked up on that because I, I, I put I put that in the introduction with a certain amount of trepidation because and I actually have never seen it stated just quite as sort of boldly as I stated it that that most piano music was written by men for their own hands for the ha- or expecting that their music would be played by by other men with 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 typical male hands and there are women who have large hands and just as there are men who have small hands but generally speaking the male hand is on a slightly larger scale than the female hand and so for a lot of piano music, particularly of the Romantic era, where they're using wider intervals and they require greater stretches between individual fingers to get your hands on big chords, um, that is easier for men. It just it just is because they can more easily stretch. For example, the Russian composer Rachmaninoff, um, end of the nineteenth century, had an enormous hand and he wrote music which his own hand could play. So he could stretch something like an octave and a fifth, which is you know a stretch that I could never manage. I can stretch an octave. And if I'm given time to stretch my hand a little bit more, I can put my hands on an octave plus one note. That's all. So I could not possibly put down the chords that Rachmaninoff plays all in one, all at one moment. I would have to go ba-ba-ba-bum. And that means that for me, uh, a lot of romantic music, I have to as they say, spread the chords, meaning to ripple from the bottom to the top. It just makes a a different effect. And I think, yeah, I think a lot more needs to be sort of thought about women and what 
music which is which is adapted to women's hands, and I don't mean that it should be scaled down in any other way than than you know physically. Just I'm talking about just the sheer size of the hand. I don't think that it should be music which is dainty, you know, dainty, dainty, delicate, or or in any way you know um, inferior to music which is written for men. But I do think it's an it's an issue which is perhaps not you know, it's not sufficiently recognised. Finally, if you could pick three pieces to see performed in their original setting, what would you want to go back in the time machine and see? One thing I would love to have seen is this is one of the first pieces I talk about in the book, Bach's Goldberg Variations, which was um, written at the request of, um, of, of, of a patron, a musical patron called Goldberg, who had trouble sleeping and employed a, a young harpsichordist to play music to him in the night to entertain him if he if he couldn't sleep. And this set of variations was was written um, by Bach, a, a very elaborate set of variations which which uses all manner of different ways of varying the original theme and gets more and more virtuosic, um, but is also very cleverly contrasted so that just as you're thinking, you know, is it always going to be fast? It changes to even the most gorgeous slow music, you know, that you can imagine and, you know, and then into something dancey and then into a serious fugue and so on. All that was apparently mastered and played in the middle of the night by a young harpsichordist <laughs> um, who could only have been a teenager at the time by by his, um, you know, if, if historical research is right. And I would love to have, have been there in the middle of the night listening to this music being played to entertain someone who suffered from insomnia. You know, what would that have sounded like? It would just be such a sort of fascinating scene to be a, a fly on the wall. That's one. I would love to have heard Frédéric Chopin at some of his concerts because we have some wonderful descriptions of how he played for example, the um, English um, Sir Charles Halley, who um, whose name we know from the Halley Orchestra. Charles Halley was present at a concert where Chopin played and said that it was so enchanting that he wouldn't have been surprised to look up and see that the room was filled with fairies. It just seemed it was it had suggested such magical things to him and he said that he he could just have, he had fallen down at Chopin's feet and kissed them. He was just, he was so entranced. And, uh, you know, that's a wonderful description to read, but 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 how wonderful to be able to hear the performance which which inspired it, you know, that that would that would be great. And then a third one might be, this is from the realm of jazz, actually. The African-American blind jazz pianist Art Tatum. I would love to have been in one of the bars or clubs where Art Tatum played the piano because he was such a, uh, he had mastered the technique of the piano to such an extraordinary extent, despite being almost entirely blind. And he had a surety of touch on the piano, which you would think you know, how, how can, how does that go along with being blind? Surely if you're blind, you, you might be more tentative about the way you moved about the piano keyboard. But with him, it was, it was the opposite. He obviously had internalized the layout of the piano in such a way that he, he could rush up and down the piano keyboard and play the most incredibly virtuoso and elaborate things at, at 
any any speed and going in and out of different keys as as it occurred to him to modulate from one key into another and back again. And he was so renowned at the time that when he was playing in the clubs of New York, um, visiting artists such as Rachmaninoff and the pianist Vladimir Horowitz and so on, they used to, when they'd finished their own concerts, they used to go along to these clubs um, in New York uh, and just sit and listen to Art Tatum playing the piano because because they admired him, and I, mean, I, I would love to have been there. You know, one 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 of those evenings with Art Tatum playing and Rachmaninoff and Horowitz <laughs> sitting having a beer <laughs> in the audience and admiring that. I think that that would that would be something to see. That was Susan Tomes. Her book, The Piano: A History in One Hundred Pieces, is out now, published by Yale University Press. And as I mentioned earlier, Susan will be launching the book with a concert at Wigmore Hall on this Friday, the 23rd of July. You can find a link for that and the book in the show notes. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley. Tune in again tomorrow when I'll be speaking to Alex Renton about his book, Blood Legacy, which shares the story of his family's involvement in the slave trade. (laughs) 